0: This is A Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the Scripture, about preaching the Scripture, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We hear it, A Word Fitly Spoken, aimed to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwin Heidi Joining us today, the Reverend David Appeld, to talk about the conscience and the hardening of the heart. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, guys. Good to be back on with you. How is the weather in lovely Paducah? Please join us for a gratuitous weather posting. Yes,
1: right. I, I <laughs> prepared a little bit of uh, a, a few things for this. Uh, now it's it's cold here. It's finally below freezing. We actually woke up this morning and there was snow on the ground. So my kids, my kids were excited about that. It was panic in the streets. Yeah. We usually, we usually get maybe five or six snowfalls in Paducah, you know, for the whole winter.
0: So it's always, oh, wow. It's always exciting hmm. when it happens. Well, I grew up in Kentucky in the mountains, and we would get like three, four inches, six, eight, maybe even a foot, and then everybody died. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but, they, but they thawed out eventually.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this is, you know, I've only been here four years, but when it comes down, it's it, we don't get dustings. We just get six, seven, eight inches. And yeah, you're right. It just shut down for, for probably four or five days.
0: Well, at least you're, you know, like me, you weren't from the mountains. So, you know, either side of the road might not be too perilous. Zelwyn's over here laughing at us. <laughs> the lakes are already thawed where he is.
2: Yeah, I, I left some water in my car the, yesterday or the day before, and it's basically a solid block of ice now. So,
0: yeah. Which, <laughs> to be fair, I can relate. It is a, up in Northwest Iowa here. It has been a little, a little bit nippy. We've already had our <laughs> first six or so snows. So, not quite that bad, but we had our first snow a couple of weeks ago, and the wind, the wind is what kills you here, you know? You really realize how vulnerable you are, and I don't, I don't own a buffalo skin like that one.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, because, like, we, we have snow on the ground right now, but I'm I'm thinking back into the past, before my time, but of the great blizzards of the past in North Dakota, <laughs> you know, snow drifts over the top of electric lines, I think of like the children's blizzard as it was so called that, that blew in and and basically caught everybody surprise.
0: Where does that name come from?
2: Well, un- unfortunately it's because uh, so many it caught so many people by surprise there were so many deaths that year. <laughs> that that that's why they called it the children's blizzard. So so yeah, so I mean this has never been an easy part of the world to live in.
0: <laughs> but it does indeed improve your sanctification if you live right. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly.
0: So anyway, we are here talking about the perennial Lutheran popular topic, the conscience, but we are specifically going to focus on in the other segments, the hardness of heart. Now, these are texts that man has made extremely difficult and that theologians have wrestled with over the years. I would hope that we would see that the reality is the texts themselves are very clear, as are most of the scriptures. Yet man wants to make them more difficult than they are for a variety of reasons. And I don't want to sound like a Campbellite here, but as we dive into this, it's good to speak in the words that the Scripture uses. And the Campbellites say, speak where the Scriptures speak, be silent where the Bible is silent, and that's a really, really loaded slogan. However, I think we should let the Scripture say what it wants to say. That is to say, let God say what He wants to say. And beginning with Luther, and I mean really beginning with Augustine, beginning with St. Paul, beginning with the Holy <laughs> Ghost, but, you know. <laughs> nice but well. um, There's a nice train right there.
2: <laughs> but, but you repeat uh, it yourself.
0: Right. <laughs> but Luther, you know, deals with this from the beginning, you know, of his struggles and really the beginning of the Reformation. And it, and it extends on into all the discussion, rather, extends on into all the magisterial reformers. So topics of conscience and hardness are very important because the bible speaks to them certainly our great theologians have seen that and honestly brethren i believe that the topic of hardening is very important specifically for our day so um, i kind of answered that question but any other reasons why we might be doing a show on the hardness of heart yeah, i
1: think that just the the three of us have you know we were talking about this before we started recording but we, we want, we enjoy talking about the forgiveness of sins and, you know, relieving a burdened conscience, but that, that assumes something, um, that I don't, I don't know how prevalent it, it really is, it assumes that a person is struggling with a guilty conscience. And I, I think yeah.
0: So, so let me stop you there before we go. So what is the conscience then?
1: Yeah. Okay. So one of the things we need to do is make sure we're defining our terms. You're, a person's conscience is, and every this is not unique to Christians. This is across the board. It's part of part of what we what we might call just kind of general anthropology that God has created in every person, in awareness of of His law. He's inscribed His law on the human heart, and the conscience is the. I don't know if it's a it's not connected to any particular organ of your body, but it's the awareness of having done what is right or having done what is wrong. So it it kind of gets a functional definition, and maybe one of you guys can can define it better than I can. But in Romans two, that's that's what you get. That your conscience is your ability to see yourself, maybe put it this way, your ability to see yourself from God's perspective. And that will either accuse sure. you, it'll leave you accused, or you you are excused. That is you're approved of.
2: We should break down the word conscience because I think that's actually quite instructive. The word conscience is a Latin word originally conscientia, uh, literally meaning with knowledge. That's conscientia like science. So if you think in those times, science meaning knowledge. So with knowledge in the sense that when we know what is right, when we are informed of what is God's will, and we act contrary to that knowledge. That is when we begin to feel the pains of conscience. We're going, we're acting against what we know to be true. And so, because of that, when we are misinformed in our knowledge, and you know, you can have a a, a faulty conscience when you're misinformed. Then you're you're going to do things that you may not know are actually wrong. That doesn't mean that they're actually okay. It just means that the conscience is always informed by what you know.
0: You know, here's the question then. If we have to know it, and we don't have the law, then are those people then innocent? I mean, come on, Goyim, we don't all have the, the <laughs> Decalogue here. So what? What should we do?
1: Yeah, that's why. That's why I started the way that I did in Romans yeah. two. You get this. You get that very question brought up, and Paul says those who do not have the law, even they know what is right. So so every person, it can be darkened, and it certainly has been darkened our our knowledge of god's will but i think we i think that every person is created with knowledge both of the content of god's law and of its function on us right so okay. this is what what we would typically refer to as natural law conscience goes i think very closely with natural law and so you get other places in romans is is really the best place to go for all of this whole episode but unbelievers know the truth, and they suppress it in unrighteousness. So no one can stand, no one can claim, well, I just didn't know. No no one can can say, you know, I'm just completely ignorant of these things, so I have an excuse. There there are no excuses.
0: Right. And, and Romans 1 is, is really clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them and then he goes into this what we would call a natural law argument which i would caution against relying on too much to you know our political sphere here but yeah they're without excuse the bible literally says that And, and it's it's not up for debate the invisible things of him from creation are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead which is interesting so that they are without excuse mm-hmm. and, and I know I know newer translations are going to say divine nature but still something of the person of God is known in all of creation not so that they may now they become a righteousness unto themselves as Paul says in Romans but what does that mean that they make their own they they, under, they perceive something of the moral law and then they still transgress it because all are by nature thanks to our father Adam transgressors
1: yeah and and so what we're we're what we're not saying, maybe we should we should specify this. we're not saying that every person knows all the specifics of God's law for that, you actually do need special revelation, right, but there is a natural reveal there is some content that is created, ingrained in us, inscribed on our hearts, and that informs every person's conscience, so every person has a conscience and every person has a conscience that is at least in some way informed of god's law now they now we can suppress that knowledge and people do they suppress it in unrighteousness and then that begins this process of hardening that we're going to talk about and god hands them over to that and so they become even more futile in their thinking and then you get all kinds of deviations that people think oh i'm i'm actually doing what is right when they are in flagrant violation of God's law. Yeah, if if
0: I may steer this a bit, let's start with Adam and just go through all of Genesis. No. So (laughs) we start with Adam, and there is the first transgression. And in Adam, all men have been judged. They have been judged guilty in a legal sense. The consequences of that are death, number one. But what is the other consequence of original sin?
2: The darkening of our knowledge.
0: Yeah, yeah, that our hearts and our minds, our eyes and ears and all of our senses have been obscured by sin. The Bible testifies, as we just read in Romans, that men have this natural knowledge of God's law, but no society through natural law has built anything close to perfection or close to righteous. I mean, we can larp about Plato and the Greeks all we want, but all you need is a is a level one history primer to see that there's no true righteousness there. You can look at all the great societies apart from the knowledge of the true God and and see what what they've built up. So what does that tell us? That apart from a revelation from God, the conscience is left in darkness. The heart is left obscured. The mind is left darkened. So what does that say then for the whole mass? That... On our own, by nature, we cannot come to God. We cannot rightly perceive the things of God. We can only perceive in some manner what is right, the good we ought to do, and then ultimately fail. Now, in a worldly sense, yes, we can do good. And we see that in society. So what is, what is that function then? All of society that matters <laughs> throughout the world have had <laughs> groups of law. Okay? And... Typically that law, you know, when it comes to marriage, it's looked a little weird, you know, it's very, it looked very different, but when it comes to things like murder, theft, that sort of thing, societies have been fairly consistent, right guys?
1: Yeah. And even, even marriage, right? Every, every society has recognized marriage. Now, again, this, yeah. you know, the specifics, you're right. They get, you get some weird stuff going on, but everybody recognizes some institution like marriage.
0: Absolutely. So... That is the state the world is in. And what does that tell us? That in his mercy, God has provided some measure of knowledge so that everything doesn't spiral into chaos. But it also tells us this, that in God's holiness and in God's wisdom and in God's righteousness, he has judged us guilty through Adam. That no man is made righteous by the works of the law, by the works of men. And it's not so much that they aren't, which is true, but they indeed cannot be made righteous by the works of the law because their minds and their hearts are darkened. They can only condemn themselves in their unrighteousness before the righteousness of our holy God. And that's where we have to start from. The conscience is never stricken by any other means other than a true contrition, a Christian knowing that they have transgressed the law of God. And what I'm doing and what I'm sitting up here and what I'm trying to explain is there is no pygmy in the cave with true contrition. There is no anonymous Christian Because all you have to do is read a couple more chapters ahead in Romans into 10 and beyond where it's it's talking about the necessity of preaching the gospel and the necessity of hearing the gospel and the necessity of believing the gospel. And we see the prototypical version of that in the people of Israel. And I suppose you could say, too, in the covenant in Genesis 3.15, the covenant of Noah, covenant of Abraham, okay, there has to be revelation Special revelation, explicit revelation for salvation to be imparted. And there has to be special revelation for true contrition for a truly pricked conscience to be present. What do you guys think about that?
1: I think, I think that's true. The reason that I, that I think that this episode is, is really important is because whether or not that happens, people are still being driven by their consciences, right? So yes. so yes. what you're describing is the the conversion of a person or conscience working as it ought to work. Is that is God's law is preached and heard and I'm convicted of my sins and I'm brought to repentance. But hardening the connection between the hardness of heart and the conscience I think works like this is that your conscience your conscience accuses you. You know that you have not done what you ought to do. And instead of repentance, you take some other route, which only leads, to, that's what then leads to the process of hardening. And that's, that's what yeah. we see in the unbelieving world. And we also see it in ourselves at different times in our lives where you you try to avoid repentance. And what you're left with is this conscience that, that you're trying to soothe or pacify or silence in some other way than, than what God actually wants.
2: Because if you have a conscience that is becoming hardened, you have something that's basically not functioning in the way that it's supposed to. So if you can imagine, for example, a limb or something starting to stiffen, or if you can imagine like a something that's soft and pliable, but now it's becoming a dry and hard, it's not functioning the way that it's supposed to. And that's the whole point of the language of hardening. The conscience is starting to misfire, It's starting to not work the way that it's supposed to, which would lead to godly repentance, but instead is just kind of shutting down and leading ever further down into destruction and sin, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about these things, I think the key word probably is repentance and in true faith there. We want to try to put a band-aid over the conscience as if it's something kind of neurotic, you know, that's always going to be chipping away at us. And I, I don't think that's the case at all for most of the world. Most of the world doesn't give a rip about any of this. And the sad thing is many professing Christians don't give a rip about the will of God or the law of God. So we, we've come to this place where we've, we've elevated the conscience and elevated the, the tender conscience or the terrified conscience to such a place where it's never actually been. And when we do that, we make it into a cartoon, when we make it into a cartoon, it's easy to get rid of. If you don't want to watch any more Bugs Bunny, you turn Bugs Bunny off, right? So, <laughs> so that's what we do with the conscience. Oh, this person is, is terrified in their conscience. Well, are they really? Is everybody really a Luther? Is everybody Paul in Romans 7, you know, really struggling with that sinful urge within him and saying the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I do, I do? But it's become such a buzzword and a byword, and it's become such a platitude that we don't look at what the scriptures have to say about it. Yeah, And that's the scary thing, to find yourself in a place where you think, your perhaps your conscience is correct, or where you think that, well, I'm beyond that. See, that's the other danger, to say that a Christian doesn't experience shame, a Christian doesn't experience contrition, or to say that when a Christian experiences contrition, shame or or the or a tender conscience that they're somehow not receiving the gospel properly or that they just need that. You know, they just they just need some kind of of like a, a slap on the butt and some kind of you know wink wink reassurance. That's that's not the case at all. The Christian life is indeed a is indeed a struggle and it is indeed difficult. And the conscience is very important because the conscience informs us ourselves, you know, the Holy Spirit informs our conscience. But at the same time, the devil and his demons would seek to twist our conscience into something that God doesn't intend it to be. And we don't want to find ourselves in either of those, or we don't want to find ourselves on the side of the devil. We want to be sure that we are seeking the guidance of the of the Holy Spirit.
1: There's so there's so much in what you just said, Willie. That's so good. Let me, let me just, I know we're probably coming up on a break. Let me just...
0: Hey, it's our podcast. We can go as long as okay, we want. Okay, let me
1: pick up on two things then. First one is... We don't want to confuse conscience with bad feelings or low self-esteem, right? A guilty conscience is a different thing than low self-esteem. And I think that that's sometimes the confusion of, well, I feel bad about, I don't know, my situation in life. I feel bad about, well, okay, that's not guilt before God. And that's really where conscience comes in, Zalwin, to go back to what you had, this conscientia. To, so to see myself with, or to know myself with, to know myself with God. So I, I see my situation, my actions as he sees them, which means my sins are not just little you know, mistakes that I made or, or things that I did in ignorance, but they're transgressions of his law. So it, it magnifies the sinfulness of sin, right? That's, that's important to to differentiate conscience and a guilty conscience from bad feels, right? <laughs> now, <laughs> right. What, the other thing, Willie, that, that I think is is useful in what you are saying there is the fact that people tune out their conscience because it it it's not really hitting home when we talk about it because people aren't they don't have that that sense of themselves bef- standing and living out their life before God's judgment seat right and and that's really you have to have that awareness of god to have any <laughs> to have any guilt or shame and like you said that those can be really good things guilt and shame if they're if they're true guilt and true shame are actually good things for a christian right now how you deal with them they can be mishandled and they can be abused by by the devil but they they also are the beginnings of a proper conversion and they're the beginnings of ongoing sanctification.
0: Very good. All right. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about some specific scriptural examples, how to perceive them, what we ought to do with them. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David Apple, talking the conscience and hardness of heart. The first thing we're going to do in this segment is look at specific biblical examples. So, the first and most notorious is the example of Pharaoh. Now, Zelwyn is our resident expert on Egyptian history. Uh, what is the spe- <laughs> An Egyptologist, if you will. So, Zelwyn, why don't you tell us a little bit? Why don't you describe? An, a, a typical Egyptian to us, what would, what would Egyptian life be like in religion? Yeah, basically
2: you have in Egyptian thought a duality. Okay. And this kind of permeates everything. So, whereas you have upper Egypt, lower Egypt, you have the red land and the, the black land, which would be the, the inhospitable land. You have the the river versus the the land. I mean, this, this duality kind of permeates everything about Egyptian thought. And as a result, one other thing that is dual in their thinking is the world as we know it and the world of the gods. But unfortunately, there is no, there would be no connection between the two except for one important figure, which we know as Pharaoh. Basically, the kingship in Egyptian thought was the link between the nation and between the gods, and Pharaoh himself was considered as being semi-divine.
0: Sure, so Pharaoh is king and and deity at the same time.
2: Right, right. He's not, well, especially after his death, he would be considered a full deity, and you have, for example, the building of the pyramids, the tombs that were erected in his honor were always done for the sake of perpetuating his existence. And this is where it might sound a little weird. The Egyptians did believe in a life after death, but they believed that it could only happen as long as the physical body still existed, which is why they did mummification, because as long as the body was still around, you could continue on in the afterlife. But mummification is an expensive process, I mean, you got to get the salt, you got to get the linen, you got to get all of the, uh, the long process that goes through it. So really only the very rich could be mummified, which means that only really Pharaoh had any hope of existing in the afterlife as a god. Yeah. But, w- but once he died and went on because he was a representation of Horus in this life, once he became Osiris... Then people were supposed to continue doing things in his honor, to give him offerings, to give him oblations, to give him basically the things that he would need to continue existing. But as long as those things were in place, it would continue on. Why that's also important for our understanding in Exodus is because when Pharaoh comes into the picture in the conflict with Israel, he is coming and saying, I am the living Horus. I am the one who is a a semi-divine. I am a God. I don't have to listen to anyone but myself.
1: Right. Who is is the Lord? Isn't that his question to Moses? Yeah.
2: Yep. Yep. And Pharaoh is also considered to be the chief priest. Like all of the priests of Egypt are basically like his stand-ins, so that Pharaoh is really the only one who is actually interacting with the gods in any meaningful way. So just a very highly central, highly important aspect of Egyptian thought, the divine kingship. Do you want me to, to expand on anything on that? Because I could go on for a while.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's 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 all good. We'll do an episode on Egypt in the future, I'm sure. But that that all kind of sets this up. Imagine, you know, we see the hardness of heart in bishops and church leaders today. Imagine if they thought of themselves as actual demigods. Right. Or, you know, and, and right. then, you know, magnify that hardening that much more.
2: Well, and this, this, to really add on to it, imagine because of that duality that I was talking about, the Egyptians also believed that the world was essentially chaos and that if the divine order centered in the kingship didn't exist, the whole shooting match would cease to exist. So can you imagine if our rulers Imagine that the only reason why the universe is still around at all is because of you. (laughs) What is that going to do to a man's conscience? Yeah, right. You know,
1: you you would cease to have any reason to look at yourself from someone else's perspective, right? You are the center of all
0: things, right? Right. Let let alone listening to some Hebrew slaves over here. So, what does happen to old Pharaoh?
2: Well, Pharaoh, of course, is is told by Moses. You know, let God tells you, let my people go. And as David mentions, he doesn't want to listen. He says, "Who is this God that I should listen to him and let your people go?" And as a result, God has his you know raises Pharaoh up for the purpose of gaining God's glory by sending uh, the ten plagues to basically force his hand and to show the the the, the glory of the Lord in bringing out his people. Despite Pharaoh's objections, Pharaoh's not going to stop him.
0: Yeah, and we might have to spend this whole section on Pharaoh once this gets cranked up here. A <laughs> bit of a theodicy <laughs> here, right? Right. <laughs> Everybody is. Pharaoh does harden his heart. We do. We do have that text that Pharaoh hardens his heart, and we also have the text that says, "I will harden his heart." I being God, in that sense. Right. Okay, so now we get into our first issue with hardening. Now, we tend to talk about hardening and conscience in the concept of, say, an individual's salvation. So as pastors, an individual comes to you, they have a particular issue or, or whatever. But God uses hardening to accomplish his own purposes in this grand historical scheme as well. And that is where people become very uncomfortable. Because deep right. down inside, we all have a sort of a libertarian streak. We all, or I'm sorry, a libertine streak within us, which says that I ought to be free to do this. But if I may, can we shift from Exodus to Romans here? You guys okay with that? <laughs> so, because Paul handles this well and much better than we can. Right. Okay, so back to Adam. <laughs> all <laughs> are sinful, we are all culled right. from a sinful mass a corrupt mass, and God is free to do what he will. Now, there are attributes of love and mercy and things like this, and I will not get into election and predestination in this episode. Okay, nevertheless, what is true? Is God beholden to us for anything? Yes or no? Of course not. Of course not. What is God just if he condemns us? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. In His mercy, God has chosen to save us for the sake of God, the Son, and His active and passive obedience. For the sake of the cross, for the sake of His submission to the will of God, for the sake of His holy and sinless life, God shows mercy to us. Now, God is not beholden to anyone, and God will accomplish His salvific purposes in the way that He wants to. And our salvation, our salvation is pictured here in the Exodus story. Because God uses evil men to accomplish his purposes. Right. And it says in Romans, I mean, it is it is as clear as crystal. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. So, excuse me, back up. Romans nine seventeen. For scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Paul goes on to talk about him showing mercy on him, he have mercy, and then whom he will, he hardens. Right, And that's what he does here. God It isn't as if God is taking some innocent Christian king and making him do evil. Mm-hmm. Perish the thought. That does not happen. God does not create fresh evil in the hearts of anyone, and he cannot create fresh evil in the hearts of anyone. Yet, nevertheless, has the potter not the power over the clay? Can he not make some vessels for honored use, and another for dishonored use? And that's what happens with Pharaoh here. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. And what's the first objection that man would say to that, guys? It's not fair. Yeah. Well, well how can he? How can he say that Pharaoh's wrong? You know, who's who's resisted his will? You know, how can you know if, if God willed this to happen? You know, how, how can he say, how can the potter say to the clay, or excuse me, how can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no rider over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, another to dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, hath endured with much patience, much long-suffering, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory? Four vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. If you don't like that, that's not me. That's not Grills. That's talking. That's Paul. That's That's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so Pharaoh has been raised up and God is perfectly within his rights to harden his heart. But what is the purpose of that hardening? to bring about the salvation of his people.
2: Yeah, and I think I think that's actually one thing we can't overlook in both of the great instances of hardening in the Bible. Of course, we're referring to Pharaoh, but I'm also referring to the, the partial hardening that has come upon Israel, which Paul will also go on to talk about. Yeah, we go from Romans 9 to Romans 11. Pretty Yep, much. pretty much. But the, the whole point of the hardening in both of these cases, in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of Israel, ethnic Israel is for the salvation of God's people. We can't overlook that fact. Absolutely, That's, This is not God being arbitrary. This is not God being vengeful or vindictive like we might think of. Whatever kind of abuse we might want to try to heap up upon God as Clay trying to speak back to the potter. This is God using Pharaoh. This is God using the Jews for the sake of the salvation well, and, of. And, his and it's
0: even it's clear there in Romans nine. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed into all the earth." So there, there's there's the reference. I mean, so that salvation might be proclaimed into all the earth. And then in Romans eleven, the Jews are partially hardened so that the Gentiles might come to salvation. God, there is no purposeless evil or purposeless bad in the world. Even the wicked deeds of Pharaoh. See, that's the thing. Pharaoh's deeds, even though he's hardened, are still his deeds. They're still his his evil works. And God still works through them to bring about goodness. Yeah, I think that's that's. You know, just as I'm listening to
1: you guys talk here, this is why I wanted to do this episode with you, to, just to get you guys going on on this stuff. But that's really helpful in terms of how we're how we think about hardening. It's not frustrating God's purposes. Now, that doesn't mean it's a good thing, right? No one should rejoice when they see hardening or if they hear stories that are clear examples of hardening. It's not good. And yet God can still use hardening for his purposes. Which is which is really kind of the point, right? He he actually makes Pharaoh's heart become even harder, so to further his purposes.
0: You know, and I, and I think this is the thing. This is touted as a difficult subject, and this goes back to s- section one, you know, part one we were talking about. It's not a difficult subject to wrap your head around that God could do this. What's difficult for people is that they don't like it <laughs> because. To say that God can't do this, and we have people who say this all the time, Christians who say this all the time, well, it's unjust for God to do that. How could God harden someone and then condemn them? How could God do that? Well, well number one, they were condemned to begin with. You know, it's, it's pretty simple. But people do not want to let God be God. They don't want to let God say what he's going to say. And that's where we're at here. And we have to ask ourselves, too, if we are uncomfortable with the word of God, the clarity of scripture, God being, you know, saying what he's saying, being very clear about it, even in these so-called difficult segments, are we ourselves not experiencing some measure of hardness?
1: <laughs> Radio silence. Right.
0: Just,
2: yeah, put, a,
0: put a finer point on it, Willie. Come on, don't right. don't beat around the bush. And this is, <laughs> and this isn't to say that we hear a word fitly spoken or haughty or anything like that. And maybe we are, and and may God repent us of that. Is that how they use the verbs today? Anyway, <laughs> but but it is to say that, and I and I implore you that when the Scripture is clear on something, when the Scripture says something, and you go, well, this is the plain meaning of the text. Don't turn around and go, well, clearly it can't mean that because. Because God wouldn't do that. You don't know what God would do by nature. God says this, and God testifies to this. What is true? God is holy. God is good. God is merciful. But God also speaks through his word, and he enlightens you that you may understand it, dear Christians. And when you come to these passages that are difficult, you don't submit to what the world thinks is right. You submit to what the scripture says. That's all I'm saying. We're gonna lose so many sponsorships. Let me let me
1: ask <laughs> let me go back to our Egyptologist Zelwin, here. Okay. I, I just I, I wanna go back to the the beginning of Pharaoh's hardening, because what you're saying, Willie, is, okay. is good, right? That Pharaoh was already a condemned man, right? By nature, sinful and unclean, even before Moses comes to him. But what is the origin or what's the first step in Pharaoh's hardening? I I I think that's an important thing to get to see. Yes, God, sure, God's, yeah, God's good purposes point. are at work in all of this. And he does say, I will harden Pharaoh. But what, what begins the, the hardening of Pharaoh?
2: Are you referring to the magicians of Egypt? No, is that what well, you're getting at okay, here? I,
1: maybe I shouldn't try to get you to guess what, what I want you to say. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of Pharaoh's hardening is when, when he rejects God's command. Let my people go that they may serve me. And right. he says, right. who is the Lord? that I should listen to. Right. And that at that moment now he's rejected God's word which ought to have, you know, ought to have free course in every person's life and that's the moment that hardening sets in. So anytime the word is rejected or questioned or set aside, that's that's the origins of hardening, right?
2: Right. Yeah, and to hear to hear the word clearly spoken and to say no thanks is a death sentence. I mean, you're, you're starting, if you're not already heading down the path of hardening, you're, you just took a big step in that direction. I mentioned the Egyptians because as soon as, as Pharaoh rejects the, the word of the Lord and says, you know, who is this God that I should listen to him, the magicians come in and they perform their counterfeit miracles so that Satan working through them confirms him in his um, unbelief. Yeah,
0: that's good. Yeah.
2: Which I think is an important thing to remember here too. Do you want me to talk about the, the lector priests at all?
0: Sure, why I, not? I like it. Let's do it. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> the, what we call the magicians, what the Bible calls the magicians, it's kind of an approximation of the word. These are the lector priests of Egypt. Basically, what that means is that the Egyptians believed so strongly in the power of the written language. That's why they inscribe their hieroglyphs on in their, their tombs and stuff like that. They believed that just to write something on a wall was to give it power. All of the, the writings in the pyramids, all of the writings in the coffins and the tombs are actually magical spells.
0: Are you saying that they're not alien?
2: They're not alien, sorry. Signals
0: or anything? Got it. Okay. <laughs> they're <laughs> not
2: telling us how to build UFOs or something <laughs> yeah. like that.
0: Yeah. Batteries, bruh. <laughs>
2: they They say things like "Snake don't come in here like the, the you know destroyers stay away they're usually kind of wards and protective spells, but anyway, the whole purpose of the lecture priests, their whole job was to kind of curate these texts which they had and to basically know all of the the magic that that they knew. Obviously, we would say that's a demonic power at work and i and of course that's absolutely true. So their whole purpose in reading out their words, reading out their magical spells, is to basically create a counterfeit miracle. And Satan gives them the power to do yeah. so, and so that that Pharaoh is hardened in his in his unbelief. Right. Yeah,
0: it's very interesting. These miracles of the priests—they they don't seem to be illusions. You know, like no. like what you would expect in some counterfeit revival today. These are these are actual false miracles here. Right. Yeah, and I, and I find that very, very fascinating. Before the break, though, we do need to get to this hard-hitting question, Zelwin. Brendan Fraser or Boris Karloff, which is the better Mummy film?
2: <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love The Mummy because it's basically like, let's take various parts of all of Egyptian history and imagine if as if they were all at the same time. So if you had like George Washington teaming up with like John McCain to go save, I don't know, something during the Civil War. I mean, it's just, it's that kind of historical I don't historical think John nonsense. McCain's
0: saving anything this side of the border. So let's you know, fair enough. another one. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you get my point. Right. I get your point. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, all right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken Egyptology Hour. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David <laughs> Apple talking hardness of heart and the Christian conscience, or really the human conscience. So, we did talk about Pharaoh a lot, and it's been very good. If you want to hear more Egypt stuff, we're happy to do that. Zelwyn is more than happy to dedicate a block of episodes to it. And it is incredibly <laughs> interesting. And really, unpacking that's good to see the significance of Pharaoh's hardening. But well, let's move from the Egyptians over to the Hebrews now the Jews and talk about King Saul and King David David Apple <laughs> Reverend Apple what does that tell us about hardening yeah what are those two men right I think the things we want to talk about here are
1: these are these are two further examples of how a person how an individual hardens himself against God's word we sort of jump from hardness of heart and hardening of conscience. We're using those things synonymously, and I think that that's okay, but I I would just take a minute here to kind of clarify that for people. The heart, when we talk about Pharaoh's heart, it's a synonym for, or it's it's at least analogous to the way the New Testament and Paul are going to be talking about a person's conscience. So even though when we get to uh, King Saul and David, there's no talk about conscience in those texts that's what's that's what's under that's what's being described is how their conscience is rejecting God's word and what are the consequences of that so let me let me just kind of take you through the story of king saul cuz david with the whole bathsheba thing is an example of of a person becoming hardened and then being broken free from that hardness but saul is the example of the the king of israel being just like pharaoh right and hardening himself against the word of the prophet so saul i think there's three examples of this after he becomes king it happens almost right away samuel gives him a number of of tasks he's supposed to do and the last one is he's supposed to wait to offer the sacrifice until samuel gets there well saul can't wait to offer the sacrifice and so he he goes ahead and offers a sacrifice and then samuel comes up as it's happening and says, why did you do this? You know, why didn't you listen to me? And really, why didn't you listen to the Lord? And so just like Pharaoh, who said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Well, not just like, but similarly, Saul says, oh, well, here's an excuse, right? I had to do this because I wasn't sure when you were going to get here, Samuel, right? You were running late and you didn't, you know, you didn't send me the message that you were running late. So I had to take matters into my own hands. Right. So this is this is classic avoidance of of guilt to to avoid repentance when repentance is the right track, is the beginning of this hardening.
0: And this is a this is a very good point. And I might have been remiss and I apologize for going into Pharaoh's hardening so early. I don't want you to think that hardening is always a result of God coming in and doing it, like with Pharaoh or with Israel in Romans 11 hardening is by and large our own doing we sear our own consciences against god's word so yeah don't don't get that idea there, there are some who might say that you know i was i was born this way and i am this way and that's mm-hmm. the way god made me and they, but really that's just a product of their own seared conscience so you have that through our actions just like through king saul we harden our own hearts and so don't ever, don't ever blame God for that. The, the discussion in, in section two was simply to say that God will use these specific circumstances to accomplish his will, which is very different from saying that God hardens everyone actively. No, the reality is, is that the sinner, which includes all of man, wants to harden himself against God and that's what we see with the tragic story of Saul is just such a sad yeah, it is. sad it really story is. there and and we can find our you know if we're not careful we can find ourselves in that position so Saul, Saul ultimately loses the holy spirit and loses loses his life i hope i didn't jump ahead on you there no that's on Saul. that's yeah, spoiler alert that's the final outcome read, don't right, <laughs> so I, I only gave you the
1: one example the one the the third example of his hardening and, and rejecting god's word comes when uh, when he doesn't slaughter. I think it's the Amalekites. I might have the wrong tribe there, as he ought to, because God said that he should. And so when Samuel comes and again says, you know, why didn't you do this? Saul comes up with excuses. He actually blames uh, the people of Israel. He says, well, you know, they didn't want me to, so I didn't do it. And
0: (laughs) yeah, that's, I mean, think about that. You know, this is Saul hardening his heart by saying, I'm not going to kill this tribe here. And we would go, yeah, I'm going to go gamble and not pay the heat bill. Or or even more simply, yeah, I'm going to sleep in and not go to, to church today. <laughs> you know, you think about what we reject, now we harden ourselves versus what Saul is rejecting. Right. Kind of puts it in perspective a little yeah. bit.
2: And we can't forget with Saul, too, the witch of Endor.
0: Yep, absolutely.
2: Um, and which would be, have a, a parallel, of course, with the magicians of Egypt coming in and confirming him in his in his hardness. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, It's almost as if when God says don't consort with sorcerers, He means it. (laughs) What? (laughs) Come on, God, you don't mean that in your law. That's 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 Levitical code. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Okay. So, how about how about King David?
1: Yeah. So David uh, also a a a good example of of how a what's the right way to put this how how conscience actually drives. Can drive a person, a guilty conscience, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but a hardened conscience drives a person deeper into sin sometimes. So just like Pharaoh increases in hardness, Saul does too. Zelman, you just mentioned at the end of his life, he's become so hard to God that he's consorting with a, a sorcerer. David, of course, falls into sin with Bathsheba and then goes on to try to cover that up, um, <laughs> even to the point where he. He murders uh, Uriah, right? And so, okay, what does that have to do with a hardened conscience? Well, I think that that here's where you ha- you have to see what's really going on there. Why is David trying to cover up what he's done? It's because he wants he he wants to avoid repentance, right? But his conscience, we are not told this in the text, but it's very clear his conscience is obviously working in his mind that he's guilty. Rather than face that, rather than admit it, he's going to take steps to cover it up. Right? He wants to silence that that voice that's accusing him. How do I silence this? Well, maybe if I get rid of the evidence. Maybe if I, you know, get rid of the husband. Maybe I. Well, first he says maybe I can make it look like the kid is actually Uriah's. Uriah is more yeah. righteous than David, and so it, he has to take further steps.
0: Well, and then ultimately, the child. What happens to the child? The child dies. Yeah, as punishment uh, for this. And, And this is kind of, it seems odd to say in this context, but this is kind of the light in this story, is that in the midst of David recognizing his sin, David knows why the child is taken away. And yet he still has this really wonderful confession of life everlasting in the midst of all this. David is hardened. But not to the point of losing all reason, all hope, all faith and I think that that's both a warning and then and then yet a bit of a gospel as we like to say in in the midst of all this
1: yeah because what and what what kind of finally gets through to him is of course Nathan coming and preaching to him and then yeah what you what you bring up Willie is so great because the the fruit of a, a healthy conscience of a softened heart. Right, David writes Psalm fifty-one. After this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, is a person who is who accepts God's discipline of him, uh, even right. when it's painful.
0: And, you know, going back to the, to Nathan, is he accepts what God is saying to them? It's it's another way of saying he accepts the word of God. This is hope for every sinner. This is hope for for people in despair here. But the message of David is a message of repentance. a message. That a message of acknowledgement that I have transgressed against God and that now hearing his word, which has cut me to the quick, which has pricked me to the heart, now I I see what I have done and I am repenting and turning in faith toward the only wise God. And there's the message there and there's the message for us as Christians and in our hardness.
2: Well, even, even with the child too, When David is told that the child has died, David is not saying like, oh, God, please give him back, you know, or whatever. He accepts it and says, you know, if if I went to him, he would not come back to me.
0: Yeah. Is there any greater evidence of Christian faith than being resigned to the will of God? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Sorry, go Proceed, sir. No, no, and that's just
2: the point, is that even even something that we would say like, oh, wouldn't David be praying fervently? Wouldn't he be trying to change God's mind? He just says, uh, with Job, more or less, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed right. be the name of the Lord. Right.
0: Almost as if he'd read that before or something.
2: <laughs> well, we won't get into the debate about when the book of Job was written, but...
0: Oldest in the, in the Old Testament, I'm calling it right now. <laughs>
2: Put 40 to 1 odds Uh, on it. 40 to 1. Yeah, well, anyway.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, these tremendous examples. So then, let's pivot from that then and, and talk about... We're doing a lot of Paul posting tonight, but that's okay. He wrote most of the New Testament. The Old Testament informs us. See, a problem we have when reading the Old Testament is... See, we like the pastoral epistles because there's some very general pastoral advice there. The mistake we make with the Old Testament... Is trying to put ourselves exactly in the shoes of, say, King David. And we can't do that. I'm not the king of Israel. I never saw a lady on a rooftop and, and had her husband murdered yet. And so <laughs> um, Uh, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's Iowa. Buildings are short. Anyway, <laughs> but what we learn from this are these general principles, how we accept the will of God, how we ought to repent. And instead of saying, well, this so-and-so, you know, it's just like King David. No, you're not. I promise you, whoever you are, you're not just like King David. Promise. I promise. But we learn those general lessons. So then we move over to the pastoral epistles, which are really giving us general advice, but which call back to this. So we see examples of what we ought to do, saying King David. I mean, even Job, as we mentioned before, whatever. We seek sort of a negative example in Pharaoh, what we ought not to do. But then we move over to Paul who actually talks about the conscience and how we ought to preserve the conscience and not to deviate from a good conscience. So what would Paul have to say about that?
1: Yeah, there's there's four places that where he talks about these four ways that, that a conscience is he uses the words deviated from, he uses the the word of repudiated, so you can repudiate a good conscience. You can pollute your conscience, and then maybe the one that's most at least just in the in the words it's most connected to hardness is people who sear their conscience
0: right, and just one one quick point, so going back to the David thing again, going back to never seeing a woman on the rooftop sending someone to die off of the thing there before the grace of God, go I, we could all say that, but here we go back now to Paul, who's saying, Be careful not to sear your consciences, don't pollute your consciences, lest you find yourself." in the trap that, of men like David and, and others.
1: Yeah. Well, so the, this this is held out as this is stuff, and searing consciences is, is, I think that that comes as part of what he says will take place with quite a bit of frequency in the latter days.
0: Yeah. Now, searing of conscience, now we understand deviating from conscience, doing what we ought not do, polluting it, seeing things we shouldn't, but searing it is something that might be lost on us a little bit. Zelwyn, you grew up in beef country. Is that correct?
2: Correct. Yes.
0: And you raised, you know, raising cattle. I'm really, I'm folks. I'm impressed by what Zelwyn did as a boy and a young <laughs> buck up in the prairie. <laughs> now, if I say, it, like, like let's say, and I know you have it, you've got the best ribeye in the world, right? And you, oh, of course. And what are you going to do with that? You're going to take a really hot cast iron skillet, right? Yeah. And you're going to do what with it?
2: Well, if you're gonna sear it, you know you gotta give it the quick the quick sear before you know you put it down to actually cook for a yeah, while so so what
0: is what does searing do? Well it, it
2: seals it in, yeah, um, It yeah. keeps the juices in right, and
0: it right. uh,
2: makes makes the makes the steak just generally better,
0: right. So in the context <laughs> of steak, it's good. it sears <laughs> that in, but in the context of of the human heart and of sin, it sears the wickedness in, right, yeah, so. Right quick whirl of thumb a blue rare medium rare beef steak very good blue rare medium rare conscience not so bueno okay
2: yeah willie you're pretty much you're pretty much a blue rare you know put it on my plate cold this is where
0: zeller reveals his fondness of well done and ketchup what? <laughs> no, no, no! And ruining like, a steak. <laughs> I can attest to Zelwyn's meat preferences: free range, <laughs> no cage chicken. <laughs> okay, I, I will never be invited right. back now. Anyways,
2: yeah, pretty <laughs> much.
0: But yeah, the seared conscious, We want to make sure that we are not searing. Really, is a, is sort of another uh, its analogy for conditioning against, or even even hardening. Yeah, in its own way. Now, how would one? First of all, we, we understand repudiating conscience. We see the good, we turn away. How would one pollute one's conscience?
1: Well, I think you, you can, we, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but you can pollute your conscience, you sully the way it ought to work. So you you call evil good and you call good evil. So then your your conscience is no longer being informed by what God says is right and wrong. And so you're not being accused of things that are actually sins. You're not being approved of, you know, of your good works. Yeah. Instead, So, so
0: it's fair to say polluting
1: leads to the searing. Oh, yeah, right. I think these things are all connected yeah. to each other. Yes, absolutely.
2: Uh, polluting would also, I think, be in line with uh, the definition of conscience. Having bad knowledge to, like you said, to call evil good or to call good evil. Basically to, quote unquote, know something that isn't actually true And so, therefore, the conscience begins to malfunction.
1: Yes, to become, this is Romans 1 language, they became debased in their thinking.
2: Right. Giving themselves up to shameful passions.
0: Right. And that's a very good point, because then what you have is giving ourselves up to shameful passions. Now, in the context of Romans and the Pauline epistles, that becomes something really crass and obvious, cavorting with prostitutes and pagan temples and things like this. But for us, it becomes much more subtle, the ways in which the hardness of heart sets in, how we sear our conscience. How does hardness of heart set in?
1: Yeah, I think this is where King's the example of Saul is... Is actually pretty good, like you said, Willie. You can't you can't look back at the Old Testament and just say, "Well, I'm just like Pharaoh," or "I'm just," <laughs> or "I'm just like King Saul." But
0: I'm just a I'm just a demigod right, of I'm Egypt. Just, you know, building. the
1: the bridge yeah. between the god, the world of the gods, and the world of humanity. But here's so here's the connection. Then the connection is just as they their hardness begins when they reject God's word. That's usually the way that the hardening of a person's heart or the the bad conscience begins to set in when we reject God's law. Maybe I can put it this way. the The function of the law is to work repentance in a person, right? So there should be a godly grief that's worked in you when you hear God's law. But, you know, we don't want to be grieved. And so sinfully, we would rather just avoid thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I don't want my bad feels, so I'm going to reject that. I don't want my conscience to be pricked, so I'm going to turn turn away from yeah. that feeling.
1: And and so distractions, just being becoming distracted from actually, you know, listening to your conscience. That's the first step in searing your conscience. You just don't think about it, right? You you get busy sure, sure. with all kinds of other stuff. You know, you stuff your face with food or drink or whatever. I don't know. You you play Fortnite all night, whatever it is.
0: <laughs> well, then that becomes, you know, that turns into something really quickly where then there's no place for confession. If I'm avoiding the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner, where indeed is the place for confession? There's not. It's It becomes this generalized talk about maybe some guilt or some collective guilt or all have fallen short. And then we don't actually admit I, we don't mean it when we say I, a poor, miserable sinner.
1: Yeah. And this, this is where the conscience, your conscience drives your behavior, right? So even though you're, even though a person may want to avoid repentance, avoid God's word, their bad conscience or, or the guilt is actually driving that avoidance behavior, right?
0: Yeah. And we should be careful in these days of the simile and whatnot to say that the Christian conscience, again, is informed by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. That that those pangs that we have, and this is not enthusiasm or pietism or any of the other naughty words. <laughs> this is simply to say that the Holy Spirit is living and active within us. And when we transgress that law, thanks be to God, he lets us know that we have sinned. So again, we go back to this meme we keep coming back to, folks. Guilt and shame is not always bad. Bad feelings does not equal gospel not predominating, okay? Bad feelings doesn't equal you're not a Lutheran. Bad feelings just might mean that God is living and active within you, okay? So take heart, dear Christian.
2: Blessed is the one who feels the, the pangs of conscience because at least then the Holy Spirit is at work rather than the one who feels no pangs whatsoever because, you know, Wake up for what you have is about to die.
0: Yeah. And see, that's the thing. That's the temptation as pastors is to treat both of those people like they're the same. Right. You know, because there is a fake pang of the conscience where someone comes in and go, I just feel overwhelmed by the church or by whatever my, you know, I've just works righteousness and blah, blah, blah. Unless give me a specific example of what is aggrieving grieving you brother. And then we can talk. Yeah. But spare me these platitudes about, these these generalities about feeling oppressed and feeling broken, okay? Go go to Twitter and tell me about it. Or Tumblr. Yeah, or Tumblr. <laughs> I'm interested in real forgiveness for real sinners. Tell me what you have transgressed. Tell me what you've done. Let us go through the confession mirror together. Let us look at the Decalogue. Let's look at those Ten Commandments and see where we have transgressed the holy law of God. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because so much of this is just play acting and, and whatever. Real forgiveness for real <laughs> sinners—that's the business of the Church of God.
2: Willie is feeling a Holy Ghost explosion,
0: <laughs> and nothing less than that. Well, I mean, this is this is seriously—we have to talk about this. Confession of sins is confession of sins. It's not just telling a cool relevant story without admitting I'm, I'm a sinner. Okay. <laughs> It's not just saying, I did all this bad stuff. Because Lutherans, you fall into this too. We all fall into this, and especially neo-reformed Lutherans, whatever. Any of the cool kids, this is what it becomes. Trying to out-testimony someone like any of the evangelicals. So they put you in a circle with your folding chairs, and everybody gives their testimony, but then there's this pressure to be a worse sinner than the guy next to you when you're testifying. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in your bad life. Okay, unless you're repenting of it and you want it to be forgiven. That's my job. Okay, and that's the job of these men here. That's the job of of, of the pastor. Okay, I don't care. I mean, I don't care if you're wearing cool jeans and doing this, that, the other. I don't care. I don't care what magazine cover you make it on. I don't care about your blog shares. All right. I want real forgiveness for real sinners. I want a real atonement. Okay, for real sins. I want real reconciliation to the only living God. And that's only found through true contrition, but ultimately it's only grasped through true faith given by God. Contrition and faith given by God. It's the only place it's found. How am I supposed
2: to follow that, Willie?
0: I don't know. (laughs) You got maybe some you got some Egyptian bibliography for me. (laughs) <laughs> but, no, that's well what we're, said. Well, but that's what we're here for we're here to soothe consciences but those consciences that are really that are really cut to the quick okay those consciences that are that are truly pricked give me real sins and i will show you a real savior who is the lord jesus christ guys any parting words
1: here, here here's the here's my final salvo it won't be it won't be as good as that but um being aware of how conscience works and how it drives a person or maybe this is the best way to say it being aware of how how people avoid and all of us are i say people but it it's for yourself too being aware of how you're you can falsely minister to a conscience right whether it's but through avoidance through what you just described as just kind of narrating what happened to you. You know, I was a victim, but never actually confessing fault, trying to make amends without seeking refuge from Christ's atonement, forming, you know, instead of being reconciled to the person who you've sinned against or to the church, you people will run off and form, you know, people who will support them. You, you get a little therapy group or or and that can kind of soothe the conscience or finally just to outright rationalize sin. Those are all ways of trying to deal with a conscience that will never work, right? Those don't, those don't bring the peace that the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus brings. And that's why we're interested in this whole thing. It's not because, you know, we're fascinated with hardness but it's because we see this as a as a real danger for people all around us and something that we encounter time and time again so we have to be aware of these things to know how can i bring people to true repentance instead of hardening
0: and for you the bruised reed the smoldering wick the, the message is not for you the gospel's for you christ jesus died for you absolution is there for you forgiveness is there for you the remission of sins is there For you, for you have felt and you know and you have seen what you have done. You have transgressed the law, the bruised reed, the smoldering wick, you hurt. The message of condemnation is not for you. Okay, you who turn to Christ, who look to Jesus Christ and his cross, we've only forgiveness, life, and salvation for you. We only ask the rest of you, the others, who fall into these traps set by false teachers, who fall into these snares set by the devil, to look to the word of God and see where you fall, where you stand. But the gospel is there for you. Christ is there for you, but only for real sin and only through a real Savior. This is a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to learn more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org. Check us out, facebook.com slash wordfitly or Twitter at wordfitly. We also have a Facebook discussion group, wordfitly posting. That's wordfitly posting with a P. I'm Willie Grills here with Helen and Heidi and David Apple. God love you and God bless.